Hi, this is Howard, and welcome back to 2022. Spring is just around the corner. We're ready to kick off a new season of podcasts, and we've changed the format slightly. So here's what we've got for you in this first podcast of 2022. We're calling this our February podcast, even though the end of the month is upon us. You've got this quick introduction from myself. Then we have Joan, who's going to give you an introduction to a year-long series that we'll have talking about the different flowers for the birth months. So she'll give us an introduction first, and then she'll be back after another segment that I'm going to do talking about the January flower, snowdrops. But before that, I'm going to start with um, a sample from a great book that we received from a master gardener that used to be working here with us in Susquehanna County and is now residing in southern Florida, Ruth Wilmarth. And she's got a great book that's out, Tending Your Garden, a collection of gardening articles. And uh, we'll talk more about the book and the author. And then a little bit of a reflection piece. They're short, what I call easy reads. And we're going to do one or two of those each podcast that we do here in the future. And then, as I said, Joan will be back doing the snowdrops. Um, and we've got a new section. We've got so many great sponsors, if you will. Um, they may not be sponsoring this podcast, but they are part of our community. And we've got one that's going to kick off this one here for this month, My Cup of Coffee out of Montrose, Pennsylvania. And then Probably the most uh, interesting segment for this podcast will be from Stacy, who you've heard before, and she's going to be doing an update and a little bit of education for you on our number one wanted poster candidate bug, the spotted lanternfly. And then, of course, we'll end up with my assistant Alexa's favorite joke, gardening joke, of course, of the day. So that's what we've got in store for you this month. Uh, we will be back rather quickly, probably within another week, talking about our annual plant sale. So uh, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you want to make sure that you do that so that you get everything automatically that's coming up in the future. So again, this is Howard. Welcome back. Hope you had a great holiday and you're looking forward to this next gardening season coming up. Thanks. And just in case you're wondering, because I just realized I forgot to say the name of this podcast. This is Digging for Answers with the Susquehanna County Master Gardeners. Hi. This is Joan Banyas, Penn State Extension Master Gardener from Luzerne County. Today, I'd like to speak a little bit about monthly birth flowers. Each month of the year has a birth month flower associated with it based on various cultures and folklore traditions. Characteristics and sentiments connect the flower to a person's month of birth. The idea that certain flowers relate to a birth month is not new. 
The language of flowers is present in ancient Greek mythology, ancient Roman, Egyptian, and Chinese texts, and folklore from European and Asian cultures. Even William Shakespeare's work included floral symbolism. The language of flowers was especially popular in the Victorian era, where certain sentiments could be conveyed more discreetly than by the spoken word, the type or color of a flower, and even the condition in which flowers were presented, all had silent meanings. For example, if a wilted bouquet was presented to someone, its sentiment was far less than affectionate. Emotional significance, personal characteristics, and birth month all have been associated with flowers. The meanings are not based on scientific study, but on folklore and tradition passed on through generations. Definitions of each flower's significance vary depending on the source and time. However, many interpretations still remain the same today. Thank you. Hello, this is Howard, and we've got a special treat for you over the next couple of podcasts here. It may run out through the end of the year. Being a master gardener is not something that everybody probably wants to be. But for those of us that have taken that route, we thoroughly enjoy what we get to do, whether it be for ourselves and our own gardens and orchards, or for most of us, it's in working with others. And I stumbled on a book here about uh, two or three months ago, provided by our area coordinator, from a master gardener who has since left our area and relocated down into southern Florida. And it's a collection of gardening articles. In fact, the book is entitled Tending Your Garden, a Collection of Gardening Articles by Ruth Wilmarth. And some wonderful illustrations in the book also from Sarah Richards-Taylor. And... Lori, who's our coordinator, and I were talking about, wouldn't this be a wonderful piece to share with our listeners as a reflection point on gardening? So, what we decided to do was each month, there's small sections. It's what I call an easy read. And we're going to pop off one or two chapters, which will only take a couple of minutes. But you can just sit back and relax, enjoy, and reflect. As we kick this off, I do want to start with um, a little bit of information about the book. Uh, as the inside cover says, this is in memory of Ray, cherished husband, father, grandfather, and friend to many. This collection would never have happened without Ray. And our devoted granddaughter, Sarah, who inspired me with her words, 
Grandma, we will not let Grandpa down. So, the book starts with a small section, what is this? And what I'll be reading each week or each month, each podcast, will be one of these sections. So you can get a feel for what's going on here. This chapter again is entitled, What is This? As a child, plants intrigue me. My great-grandmother and grandfather were wonderful gardeners, and being in their garden was a joy. I was a 12-year-old when my parents purchased our farm. There was a lovely, mature flower garden that I was urged to work in, along with an apple orchard. My father, and his father also, grew vegetables. Dad had a special interest in potatoes. My husband, Ray, had farming experience and knew a great deal about growing vegetables, although he never could grow peppers as well as I did. My interest was there, but responsibilities left little time to spare. But with the selling of our store in Hartford, fate intervened. Quite accidentally, through friends at Rotary, I found out about the Master Gardener program at Penn State, and that's how I spent 15 years volunteering with, for, and beside the very wonderful people at Penn State Cooperative Extension Service in Susquehanna County. When I accepted emeritus status as a Master Gardener, Ray thought I should pull together all the articles into a book. With changes due to technology, etc., I have decided to do a sampling of the articles to represent seasons of a gardening year. Although different than we first envisioned, I think this represents a part of my life that my children, grandchildren, and friends can remember me by. If nothing else, you will know I always have enjoyed being around plants. Finally, as part of this introduction, the section of the book that talks a little bit about the author. Ruth Wilmarth is a remarkable person who has made a difference in this world. She has never shied away from responsibility and has always endured to do the right thing. For over 42 years, she was privileged with the opportunity to be a devoted partner to her husband, Ray, the love of her life. After a successful career in business, she turned her attention to civic and other endeavors, one of which was gardening. Ruth became a master gardener, and this book is a compilation of some of the articles that she submitted to the Susquehanna County Office of the Penn State Cooperative Extension Service. Additionally, Ruth was honored by the Extension Service with their Volunteer Recognition Award. The Scranton Times Tribute named Ruth Northeast Woman of the Year, and the Montrose Business and Professional Women chose Ruth as Woman of the Year 2008. Now, as a full-time resident in Jensen Beach, Florida, Ruth continues researching, learning, and enjoying gardening, along with a few other interests. And Ruth, we want to thank you for the donation of this book and for allowing us to go ahead and share your gardening articles with our listeners in our podcast. Master Gardener 
January 2002. With this issue, I will be beginning the 10th year of presenting the Master Gardener. So many gardening experiences have gone into these articles. My first impression in 1992, when I traveled for Master Gardener training to the Poconos for six Saturdays in February and March, was intimidation. In the class, there were 39 people plus me, coming from eight northeastern Pennsylvania counties. At the first session, people were loudly explaining some exotic plant they had in their collection. I was attending on my own and in total awe of such knowledge. But when you spend six hours every Saturday with the same group, you find out very quickly those that were loudest and most boastful were not the ones with the most knowledge. I became very comfortable with my own level of knowledge and became acquainted with some very interesting people that share experiences to this day. After training in the Master Gardener program, you are required to return 50 hours of volunteer time to your local county extension office. For me, those hours accumulated in no time as I became involved with the planting on the green around the Veterans Memorial and many, many hours of radio tapes, among other things. All that led to January 1993, when the news line was consolidated and the Master Gardener was born. Over the years, we have received a quantity of gardening questions. Many of those generate an idea, some research, and maybe an informative bit of information for the news line. Also, over the years, some of our travels have generated ideas. Trips to botanical gardens, flower shows, arboretums, and a wonderful experience in Alaska and the Yukon Territory all have been gardening experiences that have helped me grow and aided me in communicating with all of you. One of my favorite occasions was the second time I was invited back to 4-H one-day camp. I had decided to see what the kids knew about herbs and how much interest they might have. It was a great day. The kids were interested. But the surprise for me was that what I learned from them. So many kids talked to me about their grandmother, mostly, sometimes about their moms. Their topic was herbs. They were delighted to share with me by pointing out herbs I had on display that they recognized as one someone in their family circle grew. That day, I went home knowing I had just met the next generation of gardeners. I had an infinite number of opportunities over the years to share gardening ideas with 4-H leaders and backyard composters with senior citizens and all ages in between. I've had delightful telephone conversations with people having a gardening problem and with people wanting to share a gardening triumph. I've met people at the grocery store, post office, parties, or in a parking lot that read our newsline and offer a comment on something I wrote. 
I am humbled by all of this. The term Master Gardener still intimidates me. I have much to learn and much to share. Although it does not seem possible we are beginning the 10th year, it is very real that I am honored to have been asked to have had a part in it. Well, thank you very much, Ruth, and be sure to tune in on our next podcast episode for her next chapter entitled January from January 2000 from her book, Tending Your Garden, a collection of gardening articles. Till then, this is Howard. Hi, this is Joan Banyas, Penn State Extension Master Gardener from Luzerne County. And I'd like to talk a bit today about January's birth month flower, the snowdrop. Dainty white flowers of this early blooming bulb often poke through a layer of snow. According to the Old Farmer's Almanac and other sources of folklore, in some early descriptions, the snowdrop was considered to represent bad luck because it seemed to grow frequently in graveyards. Happily, today this delicate flower signifies hope and beauty. The pure white color represents purity, innocence, and sympathy. Because snowdrops are early blooming bulbs that often poke through a layer of snow, they seem especially representative of renewal and rebirth. The dainty blooms offer the expectation of spring, even though winter snow is still on the ground. The snowdrop can bloom from January through March, although it blooms in much of Pennsylvania in late February or March. The following cultural information on snowdrops is from the Penn State Extension article, Snowdrops, by Martha Murdoch. Snowdrops, which are native to Europe and the Middle East, are very popular in the northern United States and have widely naturalized. Also common in Great Britain, Special tours visit areas where the naturalized flowers form impressive carpets of white blooms. There are even snowdrop festivals held in Scotland. However, you do not need to travel outside of Pennsylvania to attend one of these breathtaking events. Consider traveling to Downingtown, Pennsylvania, which holds its own annual Galanthus Gala. A member of the Amaryllis family, snowdrops comprise a small genus, Galanthus, with about 20 species. The common snowdrop grows only three to six inches tall with linear leaves. The plants have a single small drooping bell-shaped flower with six white petal-like sepals, sometimes marked with green. 
The giant snowdrop, Galanthus eloisii, looks very similar, just larger, growing from 14 to 16 inches tall. Snowdrops prefer part shade to full sun and benefit from a rich humus soil with good drainage. However, they will tolerate a variety of soils. Plant the bulbs in the fall about two to three inches deep. Snowdrops need a cold period, known as stratification, in order to bloom. Temperatures need to go below 20 degrees Fahrenheit during stratification, so this plant will not be found growing in southern gardens, nor will you see them in the far north as they will not survive temperatures below minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Attractive in woodland settings and rock gardens, they also may be planted under deciduous trees as they will bloom and die back before the trees leaf out. Pretty planted in drifts of up to 25 bulbs or so, they will spread over time. To speed up propagation, carefully dig and divide them soon after they're done blooming. Snowdrops have no serious insect or disease problems and are deer resistant. However, there is a caution for pets and children especially. The plants are poisonous if ingested. Some gardeners also report skin irritation and recommend gloves when handling. If possible, you might want to try growing your own birth flower or that of a family member or a friend. How thoughtful it would be to give a loved one a bouquet including homegrown flowers personalized by birth month. Maybe even tuck a few in a winter bride's bouquet for special emphasis. Whether you are a January baby or not, plant groupings of snowdrops in your garden or landscape to see a bit of spring emerge early every year. They are bright and uplifting and truly do seem to represent hope, beauty, and renewal. Thank you. Hi, this is Howard back with you. Sue Stone, who retired uh, last year as director of the Library and Historical Society, uh, reminded me in a recent discussion that when you're working the front desk at the library, or actually in any position, but normally they come to the front desk, we are a reference library. Reference about our community. So we started to think that as part of our podcast series, questions come up about our community. And not just, where do I find this book, but something as simple as, hey, I'm new to the community. Where can I find a great cup of coffee? Well, you know what? As our first highlight of a local business, if somebody came to the front counter at Montrose and asked me that question, my response would be, have you checked out 
My Cup of Coffee down at 158 Church Street. And Cuppa is spelled C-U-P-P-A. Again, that's My Cup of Coffee at 158 Church Street. My Cup of Coffee. They've been around for about a year now, and it is the best coffee that I have found in this area. It's a small shop. Everything's kind of custom made. In fact, it's amazing to sit and watch Allison, the owner, and she's in there working just about every day that I've been in there. And check out her Facebook page. Again, if you do a quick search for My Cup of Coffee, again, C-U-P-P-A, you'll find some wonderful videos. And what's so unique about it, in my experience of being in a couple times now, is that it's always different. It doesn't matter if you're looking for the cold or hot drink of the day, or maybe that soup for lunch, or a quick sandwich, or, wow, the baked goods that she churns out, pretzels, bagels. Every day, something is a little bit different. Again, that's My Cup of Coffee, 158 Church Street. They're open from Tuesday through Thursday from 8.30 to 4.30. Friday, they tack on an extra hour at the end of the day till 5.30. And Saturday, from 9 to 1. They are closed on Sunday and Monday. So check it out. Drop in My Cup of Coffee, 158 Church Street. Tell Allison or whoever's working behind their counter that Howard in the podcast suggested that you stop in and check them out. Let them know that we sent you and give us some feedback here and let us know what you think about My Cup of Coffee. Wait, you say you're too busy to go check them out and get a cup of coffee or a muffin or maybe a quick soup and sandwich for lunch? Did I mention that they'll deliver? That you can order online? Again, check out their Facebook page. If you work in a local business in the Montrose area or you own a local business in the Montrose area, contact me and let me know so we could highlight you possibly in a future podcast. Thanks. Hi, this is Stacy Kolechitz, Penn State Extension Master Gardener of Susquehanna County, here to talk to you today about a bad bug, the spotted lanternfly. What comes to mind when you think about our state of Pennsylvania? Penn's woods, farmlands, great rivers, white-tailed deer, large cities, Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, small rural towns, a history of coal mines, Amish communities, private and state colleges, Penn State, Hershey's Chocolate, sports teams, the Steelers, the Eagles, Utz Potato Chips, the list goes on and on. But one thing that you've probably never thought about adding to that list may be the spotted lanternfly. Did you know that Pennsylvania was the first area that the spotted lanternfly was first detected in the United States? The year was 2014. The date was September 22nd, when a Pennsylvania Game Commission employee discovered a high number of the unusual insect. The discovery was southeastern Pennsylvania in Berks County. The suspected mode of transport of this insect was unintentional 
probably on a shipment of stone. As of February 2022, spotted lanternfly is found in 34 counties in Pennsylvania, all of which are under a state-imposed quarantine. The quarantine is in place to stop the movement of spotted lanternfly to new areas within or out of the current quarantine zone and to slow its spread within the quarantine. In addition to Pennsylvania, the spotted lanternfly is also found in New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Connecticut, Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, and West Virginia. The spotted lanternfly, Lycoma delicatula, is native to parts of Asia, China, Vietnam, Japan, and India, and belongs to the insect family Fulgoridae, also known as plant hoppers. The spotted lantern fly feeds on more than 70 species of herbaceous and woody trees and plants. Their preferences are what plants are available at a given time and within a given area. The plants on which they feed are called host plants. Favorite host plants of the spotted lanternfly nymphs include grape, rose, tree of heaven, black walnut, and styrax. Favorite hosts of the adult spotted lanternfly include some of the same plants, grape, tree of heaven, black walnut, and styrax, along with maples, river birch, willow, and sumac. The spotted lanternfly is a voracious feeder. Their feeding is considered to be a stressor to the plant or tree upon which it is feeding. The spotted lanternfly feeds on plant sap using piercing, sucking mouth parts. They acquire nutrients from the plant sap. The sap they ingest contains high amounts of sugar, which is not completely digested by the insect. They excrete the excess as liquid waste called honeydew. If a lot of spotted lanternflies are feeding, this can be seen falling from the trees on a sunny day, looking like a light rain. It falls from the trees and collects below the insects and sometimes on the leaves and bark of the tree. Insects such as ants, wasps, bees, and other sugar-loving insects feed on the honeydew. Sooty mold colonizes and grows in the honeydew that the spotted lanternfly creates. Sooty mold does not directly harm the plants or the surfaces on which it grows, but it can block the leaves and reduce photosynthesis. Sooty mold can stain trees, decks, vehicles, any place underneath the trees that are infected with the spotted lanternfly. When this stressor combines with other stressors, such as weather, other insects or diseases, significant damage to the host plant or tree can occur. The spotted lanternfly is not thought to kill most trees on its own, but can cause localized branch damage. Though spotted lanternfly feeding is a stressor to plants, it has not been observed to kill plants, except for the tree of heaven, black walnuts, saplings, and grapevines. So what do we, as master gardeners in Susquehanna County or Pennsylvania residents, need to know about the spotted lanternfly? 
everyone needs to know that the spotted lanternfly do not bite or sting. We need to know how the spotted lanternfly spreads through population growth, through natural spread, and through human-assisted movement as they hitch rides on highways or railways or on vehicles such as cars or trucks. If you are not in one of the counties that is already quarantined, it would be useful to report a sighting of spotted lanternfly. Take a picture or collect some samples and you report your findings to the Spotted Lanternfly website at extension.psu.edu slash spotted-lanternfly. After you've taken the picture of the sample, make sure you destroy the spotted lanternflies or eggs. Everyone needs to know about the life cycle of the spotted lanternfly. There is only one generation of spotted lanternfly per year in Pennsylvania. Eggs are laid in the fall from September to November. They can and do lay their eggs on almost any surface. Eggs hatch in the spring from April to late May. Egg masses are about one inch long and about one half inch to three quarters inch wide. These masses have four to seven vertical columns of seed-like eggs that are laid side by side and contain 30 to 50 eggs total per mass. Egg masses are covered with a gray to brown mud-like covering. Egg masses can be found on the bark of trees, houses, decks, rocks, outdoor equipment, lawn furniture cushions, light bulbs, solar lights, and even backpacks. The spotted lanternfly prefers smooth bark trees rather than rough bark for egg laying, such as red maples, yellow maples, willows, black cherry, and pine. Unfortunately, only a small number of egg masses, less than 2%, are laid on trees at a reachable height which is considered to be about 10 feet. These eggs hatch from April to late May. Newly hatched spotted lanternflies are called nymphs and are small, only about 1 eighth inch in size. They can be hard to find and can be mistaken for ticks or spiders. But remember, nymphs are black with white spots. A telltale sign that they are spotted lanternflies and not some other type of insect is their behavior of jumping when approached. Spotted lanternfly nymphs experience four molts. These molts are called instars. With each molt, the spotted lanternfly nymph doubles in size. As they grow, they split along their backs and crawl out as a new life stage. During instars 1, 2, and 3, nymphs are black with white dots. Although they do not have wings in the first three instar stages, they are always considered plant hoppers. In instar 4, the nymph is about half inch long and is now red with white dots and black stripes. 
Adult spotted lanternflies start to emerge in July and stay active until they are killed by the hard frost of the fall. Nymphs and adults are both strong jumpers. Adult spotted lanternflies are large. They are about one inch in length and are one half inch wide with their wings folded. Their four wings are gray with black spots. Their wing tips are black with gray veins. Their hind wings are red, black, and white. Adults can jump several feet when startled or approached. The spotted lanternfly is a very handsome invasive bug, but a very bad bug. When flying or startled, their vibrant red hind wings are visible. At rest, their grayish wings have black spots with black and gray tips that are visible. So that's what they look like, where they lay their eggs, and the growth process from egg through four instars up to the adult spotted lantern fly. Why is all of this information important to know? Because currently there are 34 counties in Pennsylvania that are under regulatory spotted lantern fly quarantine. Many other affected states have enacted quarantines. What does spotted lanternfly quarantine mean? In Pennsylvania, the quarantine area is designated by the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture, or PDA. The purpose of the quarantine is to prevent accidental human-assisted spread of spotted lanternfly. Currently, Susquehanna County is not under quarantine, but could be in the very near future. The purpose of quarantine is to reduce the spotted lanternfly population. This helps to maintain movement of Pennsylvania products in and out of the state. Because quarantine requires any known items that are moved from infested areas be inspected and spotted lanternflies destroyed before shipment. Quarantine affects all businesses and all residents in quarantine areas. All businesses in a quarantine area or doing business in a quarantine area are required to get a spotted lantern fly permit. The permit is free and is awarded after successful completion of a training course. Penn State Extension worked with the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture to develop permit training for Pennsylvania businesses. The permit training is self-paced and there is no charge. It can be accessed from the Penn State Extension website. The concept of the course is to train the trainer. A company chooses someone to complete the course, and then this individual trains the other employees. Over 26,000 companies have participated in the course and have educated more than 1 million individuals. Information regarding the course and permitting can be found by searching the Penn State Extension Spotted Lanternfly. No discussion would be complete without talking about management of the spotted lanternfly. The spotted lanternfly have no native or natural predators at the current time. Biological controls such as fungal pathogens 
and other insect predators are being researched. It is important to understand that the spotted lanternfly cannot be prevented from coming into any one property and that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to control or elimination. Remember, each situation is unique. You should assess your situation before deciding on a plan. Low numbers of spotted lanternfly may not necessitate treatment. Many things need to be considered before deciding on a plan. Consider the number of spotted lanternfly present. Consider the location of the spotted lanternfly. Are they on a preferred plant where they are likely to stay? Or on a fast food plant where they will visit, eat quickly, and move away to their next preferred tree or plant? Consider the size and health of the affected plant. Consider the presence or absence of preferred host plants on your property. Consider the life stage of the spotted lanternfly present. Assess your risk. Monitor your surroundings. Watch for patterns in movement and feeding. Look for the presence of honeydew and sooty mold. Consider what is the likelihood of the spotted lanternfly impacting your plants? Will the spotted lanternfly feed on them? Are there other stressors affecting the plant? Excessive rain, drought, damaged trees, disease, or age? If you must treat, consider the lower option controls first. Promote plant health. Consider removing favored hosts, such as Tree of Heaven. Don't assume that all damage is from spotted lanternfly. Remember, they do not chew on leaves or woody parts of plants. So if you see that kind of damage, it is probably another culprit. Consider physical or mechanical control. Scrape, smash eggs, use tree traps, swat, stomp, nymphs and adults. Nymphs and adults crawl up from the tree trunk to feed higher on the tree. Traps can intercept them. Funnel-style funnel traps or circle traps can be used. You can build your own circle trap. Detailed instructions for building a new style spotted lanternfly circle trap can be found by searching spotted lanternfly circle trap. A sticky band trap can be used, but should never be used without a wildlife barrier to prevent bycatch. Sticky bands and tree banding glue can be purchased online or from your local garden center. Installing a loose barrier of fine window screen mesh over the sticky band will help prevent the sticky band from capturing pollinators, birds, squirrels, bats, and other wildlife. Chicken wire is not recommended because small animals and birds and pollinators can get through the larger holes. Do not use duct tape or petroleum jelly. Weather will cause these to lose their stickiness and the spotted lanternfly will escape. These traps work best on smooth bark trees. Nymphs and adults can crawl under the sticky tape traps in 
deep grooves of bark. These traps should be placed four feet from the ground and secured tightly with staples or pushpins. They can also be used as soon as the nymphs hatch. Traps are most effective on nymphs, but they may also catch adults because of the spotted lanternfly's behavior to crawl up the trunks of trees. Start with the least toxic chemicals, such as insecticidal soaps, neem, and botanical oils, chemicals that have very little residual activity. Natural pyrethrins are thought to be non-toxic to birds, but are highly toxic to fish and moderately toxic to bees. Insecticidal soaps are thought to be non-toxic to fish, bees, and birds. Other contact products are moderately to highly toxic to birds, fish, and bees. Use of contact and systemic insecticides do not come without consequences. Contact insecticides kill when the chemical makes contact with the insect body. Residual activity varies and is dependent upon the product, but can be from 0 to 14 days. Contact insecticides require thorough coverage of the insect's body, but work for a short period of time. They should not be applied to blooming plants because of the negative impact this could have on pollinating insects, such as bees and butterflies. Systemic insecticides can be applied by soil drench, truck spray, or tree injection and are absorbed by the vascular system to other parts of the plant. They are absorbed by roots, barks, or leaves. Recommended spray time is only after the bloom is finished to protect pollinators. Most systemic insecticides are slightly, moderately, or highly toxic to birds, fish, and bees. The insect is killed when it feeds on the treated plant. Longevity can be up to two or more months. Systemics should not be applied to plants that the spotted lanternfly do not feed on. Spotted lanternfly need to feed in order to ingest the poison. Again, systemic insecticides could be really harmful to pollinating insects. Consult your local Penn State Master Gardeners for a timeline of when this kind of insecticide could be least harmful to pollinators. Always follow the label for any pesticide applications you may choose to use. Spotted lanternfly is a bad bug, but by trying to treat for it with insecticides, you may be doing more harm than good. Make a careful assessment of how many spotted lanternfly you are seeing, and if they are really apt to damage plants in your landscape, or cause damage through sooty mold. If you are in the known range of spotted lanternfly, do your part to prevent the further movement of the spotted lanternfly. When you travel within or out of a quarantine zone, check your car. Look under your car, in the wheel wells, and on bumpers. Check outdoor equipment, grills, coolers, outdoor furniture, landscaping supplies, mowers, sporting equipment, don't move firewood. Check for egg masses from late fall to early spring. Check for nymphs from late April through October. 
Look for adults in August and September or until heavy frost. Remember, long-distance transfer of the spotted lanternfly is primarily human-assisted. It is felt that there are some generalist predators that exist in nature, such as spiders, praying mantises, parasitoids, and birds, but not enough to impact the spread of them at this point. Two species of fungal pathogens were identified in Pennsylvania that attack and kill the spotted lanternfly. Bovaria bassiana has been researched in woodlots. The pathogen is commercially available as a biopesticide, but is not currently recommended. Continued research may include it in future recommendations. The USDA, Penn State Extension, and other agricultural extensions in nearby states are all researching better management strategies for spotted lanternfly. You can report spotted lanternfly sightings at extension.psu.edu slash spotted dash lanternfly. That's extension.psu.edu slash spotted dash lanternfly or by calling one eight 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 four bad fly. Again, that's one eight 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 four bad fly. Thank you for joining us today. What Digging for Answers podcast wouldn't be complete without a gardening joke from my assistant. Alexa, tell us a gardening joke. What do flowers wear under their petals? Under plants. Did you get that? What do flowers wear under their petals? Under plants? That's it for this episode of Digging for Answers. See you soon. Bye.